Hello listeners of the Iroquois History and Legends podcast. My name is Zach Twomley and I'm the host of When Diplomacy Fails podcast. If you know who I am, wonderful. If not, that's okay, because you're listening to this podcast after all, and it's a pretty good thing that you are. The Iroquois History and Legends podcast. Is it Iroquois? Iroquois? I'm not really sure. I'm not here to pronounce it correctly, because this is not my job. Instead, this podcast is in the very capable hands of Andrew and Caleb, two guys who work very hard to bring you a quality product. I think they do a very good job, and obviously you do too, because otherwise you wouldn't be listening. However, if you've had your fill of Andrew and Caleb, make sure to check out When Diplomacy Fails podcast. And you should especially make sure to check it out, because When Diplomacy Fails on the 18th of May 2017 is five years old, and well... My listeners know it, but you guys may be unaware of the fact that we're doing something very, very special. So I hope you'll check us out then. Go to WDFpodcast.com or, well, just search When Diplomacy Fails Podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Alrighty, guys. Thanks for listening to the Iroquois History and Legends Podcast. And make sure to let us both know that you enjoyed this episode. everyone and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew and I'm Caleb and you are listening to part three in a several part series we were doing on the French and Indian War. Last time General Braddock and his 1300 British soldiers were in a flying column marching towards Fort Duquesne where they are ambushed kind of and soundly defeated by a group of Native Americans. Now on top of Braddock losing many of his men and his own life this defeat is going to have much more serious consequences besides money and men. And that is his personal secret mission log was captured, therefore giving the French knowledge of where all the troops are going to be stationed and uh, strategic points that the British are attempting to capture. And this isn't even the last debacle that the British are going to have in this war. In fact, it's not even going to be close. The overwhelming Indian victory in this battle is a tipping point. And many of these... Mingo towns in the Ohio Valley and these other peripheral tribes are going to see the French and Indian victory and they're going to think to themselves, well, maybe it's time we throw in with them and maybe we're less likely to lose our land with the French around. And also, throughout all of this, the diplomacists in the Six Nations are working hard to make sure that the entire Longhouse, the Six Nations of the Iroquois, will stay neutral in this. But now with this sound defeat of Braddock and the British, a lot of the western parts of the Longhouse are starting to lean and side with the French. So this is creating a tear in the Iroquois Confederacy. They started to argue and take note that maybe the French are the people to be with. You know, their trading posts are rather small. Well, when the British set up a commerce center, soon it becomes a commerce center with a British town enveloping it. Yeah, you have to remember that the French at the time tended to defeat the English a lot because they had a lot more soldiers, but what they didn't have a lot more of was settlers. The English had about 10 times more men than the French did in North America at the time. 
The Iroquois and the other Native Americans noticed this. Whenever the French would come through and build a fort, they would basically stay in the fort and use it as a trading post. An unnamed Oneida chief uh, was quoted at a council in 1754. Are you ignorant of the differences between our fathers, the French, and the English? Go and see the forts of the French that they have built, and you will see that the land beneath their walls is still hunting ground. The French have fixed themselves inside the places that we have given them, and they only come out to trade and supply us with our wants. But the English, on the contrary, as soon as they get possession of a piece of land, then all the deer and game are gone. The trees fall down before them, and we find nowhere to shelter ourselves when the cold night falls. It's important that you think of that because a lot of people think, well, how much land do you really need? Oh, you just need a little bit to build your house. But for the Native Americans, their whole way of life was hunting and having these vast fields. So if you can't hunt anymore and you're just confined to a few acres, that's really going to cut into your entire way of life. So let's talk about the aftermath of Braddock dying and having his army practically wiped out. You remember, Caleb, that the British commander that took over after Braddock died decided to pull almost his entire force back, and they were stationed at Fort Cumberland on the frontier, but he decided to go camp in Philadelphia for the coming winter that was looming in five months. So he just left a token force at Fort Cumberland, and this left the entire western frontier totally defenseless, which would be, you know, fine if there weren't thousands upon thousands of British settlers living there. The thing is, a lot of these people that had settled in the frontier, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but they were actually mainly new immigrants, predominantly from Ireland and Scotland. So these Scotch-Irish people were mainly rather poor. There really wasn't a place for them. It's just been a history where generally immigrants aren't welcomed, especially in big population centers. Also, at all these new colonies where they're setting up these cities, all of this land that's been bought up one and two and three generations before has become very valuable because it's close to the cities, it's close to the ports for shipping. So only the richest can afford the lands close to the East Coast. Therefore, it's pushing all of the new Scots-Irish settlers further and further to the West into the frontier. And actually, the government endorses this idea because they figure, one, it gets rid of these troublesome immigrants out of our area. Two, we can still sell this land and make some money off it. Not as much, but we can sell it. And three, and most important, these people will be like a buffer state between us and these savage Indian tribes to the West. So your average mom and pop uh, Irishman that's moving in here, they don't know anything about Native Americans. And in fact, they think that, okay, we legitimately bought this land. They don't know that Pennsylvania has been cheating the Delaware and Shawnee out of their land for the last several decades. And these Irish settlers that are moving into this Ohio-Virginia frontier, they're most likely so poor that very few of them even own a gun to defend themselves. And we're going to see that when the French and Indians come through, there's literally no defense for them whatsoever. Especially now that the army is gone. So as we said, this makes them absolute prime targets for raids, and especially from the Delaware and Shawnee. The Shawnee had thrown in with the French before Braddock's defeat, and the Delaware decided to stay neutral. But once the Delaware see where the French have had this resounding victory, they decide that this is their chance to break away from the Iroquois Confederacy. They're not going to be props anymore. They're going to throw off any allegiance that they have to the Council of Sachems. 
Now, the rules that had been set down for them being a prop member of the Iroquois Confederacy required them to put forth a question to the council whenever they wanted to attack or declare war on anyone. This meant anyone, including Europeans and other native tribes. And the Council of Sachems would decide whether it was justifiable for them to go to war. But with them officially declaring war on English settlers, this pretty much sticks the finger up in their face and saying, we're our own people now, and forget you guys. In the six months after Braddock's defeat, these different raids carried out in western Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia kill over a thousand English settlers, and over 1,500 people are captured. This causes thousands of farmers to flee back towards the East Coast, towards the cities for refuge. It just creates a massive refugee crisis. And by the time this war concludes, a third to one half of the whole western frontier will be completely emptied of people. And this is going to become a huge problem as the English try to get new campaigns to meet the French on the frontier lines. There's no farms being planted along the way, so there's literally no ability for them to forge and live off the land as they move out. Once they leave the cities with their caravans, they got to take enough with them to survive until they either capture the fort or starve on the way back in a retreat. The Indian French strategy is working brilliantly. The French are arming these Indians with guns, mainly guns and weapons that they've seized from Braddock's defeat and other weapons. Now the Indians are instilling fear and terror, which is what they want. They just want land back, and by doing this, they're getting rid of them. Now the interesting thing about many of these raids is usually what would happen was people would show up at a farming community. They'd show up, they'd kill who they could really quick, and carry off everybody else captive. In the past, a lot of times, people were brought back to the villages, and the men mainly were ritualistically tortured. And that still happened a bit. But mainly, the Indians viewed the men as more valuable because the French were very willing to, I'm going to use air quotes here, ransom them. And you may be thinking to yourselves, well, why would the French be so eager to ransom these British colonials back to uh, French hands? It wasn't because the French were such good, nice people. It was because they wanted cheap um, dare I say, slave labor to help them with their further campaigns. And on top of that, any officers and people that came from richer homesteads down in the British colonies, their families would be willing to pay a lot of money to the French. So the French might be able to ransom them for a musket, and then they could sell them, I mean, ransom them back to the English for hundreds of pounds sterling. Mainly the women and children, however, were fully adopted and passed out among the different native towns and villages. And generally, the women and children assimilated pretty well and some of them even became rather fond of their new life. One of the most famous people that this happened to was a woman named Mary Jemison. Now, she was captured in 1758. She was just 15 years old. And a Shawnee raiding party came down and attacked her family and led her parents away. And then eventually she saw later that they had been scalped and killed and saw the Shawnee there actually preparing their scalp. She recognized her mother because of her red hair. She was taken and eventually married a Delaware man who moved back with her to Seneca territory. And we're going to talk a lot more about her life later. And she's going to be very influential among the Seneca, even through the Revolutionary War. So don't worry, you're going to hear a lot more about her. In short, these colonies were in an absolute mess. But it's going to get better, right, Caleb? Uh, well, it's going to get better for the French for the next several years. 
Yeah, it gets much worse. Back in Philadelphia, I picture Ben Franklin sitting at his desk, beating his head against a wall. He, you remember, was influential in getting all these supplies to Braddock to have this victory. And he's been going all over the North American continent trying to unite against the French. Right before Braddock's expedition, Franklin went to New York in 1754 for a colonial gathering, which is famously known as the Albany Congress. These delegates got together and they discussed different matters of how can we be more united and help each other out? And while they were there, at the same time, there was a council with the Iroquois Confederacy. So Franklin came away in awe at the Haudenosaunee system of government. And while he was there, he, he proposed the idea of a federal government to unite all the colonies together. People kind of looked at him and said, nah, no thanks, and they totally rejected his idea. But soon after, he goes back home to Philadelphia, and he publishes probably one of the most famous political cartoons you've ever seen. It's called the Join or Die cartoon. You've seen this, right, Caleb? Yeah, Andrew, this is a, a primitive sketch he did of a snake in sections, and each of the sections of the snake is representing one of the English colonies. And his point was that a snake together can be very powerful and strike and cause fear in somebody. But when you take a snake and you cut it into 10 pieces, what good is it? Now, this snake in this early sketch ends up becoming what we now know today is the don't tread on me flag. It, it ended up in the Revolutionary War really catching on uh, because that's when everybody finally looked back on Benjamin Franklin and said, hey, remember what he said back in the French and Indian War on how we should look at the Iroquois and how they do it and all unite and fight together? Uh, that sounds like a good idea now. So it ended up becoming a flag for the U.S. Navy in the late 1700s, and even to this day you'll still see the flag flying around. In his writings, he began to publish different articles, and he would ask rhetorically, if these six Indian nations can come together in unity for mutual defense, why can't we do the same? Referring, obviously, to the Iroquois Confederacy. Hey, there's six different nations with their own autonomy, but they come together and they get stuff done, and they don't stab each other in the back. What's wrong with us? We can see early on that the Iroquois Confederacy is influencing American politics and their thinking as a whole. What are we? Are we Americans? Are we British? Are we colonists? Are we more than that? You can see that these values from the Iroquois are becoming seeds that are going to be sown for the American Revolution. Meanwhile, the French have been very busy bees. They're taking Braddock's secret mission on where he's sending his invasion forces to very good use, and they are promptly creating forts on every single choke point to counter the British plans. Mainly, they started building some forts along Lake Champlain. Now, if you remember, all the way back, we've talked about this in many episodes, Lake Champlain is this huge, long, winding, and crooked lake that goes all the way from middle of New York up between the New York-Vermont border and even into southern Canada. The French start building several forts along this lake as choke points. And then there's another lake next to Lake Champlain that has a really short river that descends rather rapidly called Lake George. So the French start building down and they establish Fort saint frederic which is less than 100 miles from Albany. So in a very short amount of time, the French and British worlds are becoming much more compacted together. And this is going to be a flashpoint. In 1756, the British decide to call the Iroquois Confederacy together again, and they have a conference at Albany. And we'd like to introduce a man called William Johnson. 
This guy is made Indian commissioner and he sets up a farm homestead outside of Albany, west a little bit, more into Mohawk Oneida territory. And his principal job is getting to know the Iroquois better. And also he starts making a lot of money on the side, which kind of pisses people off because a lot of trade that's supposed to be going to Albany is going through his homestead instead since he's much closer to them. But that's neither here nor there. Eventually, William Johnson starts to become a rather popular guy, especially among the Mohawk, and he even marries a woman. And then on top of that being married in, he actually becomes an adopted member of the Iroquois. So William Johnson is going to become a very prestigious and well-respected Indian commissioner, not only to the English, but also to the Iroquois and the other nations. That being said, all the influence in the world that this man has, when he gets together in this conference... The Confederacy decides that, you know what, for the last 55 years, we've said that we're going to remain out of these British and French conflicts as much as we can. And we think that it would still be prudent that we leave this up to the individual member nations, and we think it would be best if we stay out of this and remain neutral. So each nation officially stayed neutral throughout all these conflicts, but that doesn't mean that their young warriors necessarily stayed neutral. We're going to see that a lot of the young warriors from all of the five nations are going to participate in one way or another. But officially, the six nations of the Iroquois are staying neutral. So among the Mohawks, William Johnson is able to get several of the bands of Mohawks that are down in New York to join over and help the British. That being said, you've got to remember that the Mohawks are kind of split into two factions right now because you have the southern faction that's in New York that are more allied with the British, and then you have the northern Mohawks that many of them have become Catholic Christians and they're settled up into southern Canada. And obviously, because of their close proximity, they're allied with the French, and many of them actually came with the French and helped defeat Braddock in this expedition. One notable person who was a Mohawk chief that was very much allied with William Johnson, was a man named Hendrick. Now, Hendrick was a very prestigious Mohawk leader. In fact, a lot of people referred to him as King Hendrick because of the sway he had over his other peers amongst the Mohawk. Now, on top of Hendrick being a very powerful political leader amongst the Mohawk, he also uh, had a daughter who happened to be quite attractive, and William Johnson found her attractive, and they ended up getting married. Uh, so this made Hendrick... King Hendrick, William Johnson's father-in-law. And these two people ended up becoming very good friends and working on campaigns and war together for a long time. Now, Hendrick was born into the Bear Clan from his mother's line, but he also attended an English school in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. This really made him a very important person because he kind of saw the culture from both sides. He spoke fluent English and the Iroquois dialects, so he could be a translator. He was also had a lot of war experience. And another interesting thing about him was he was a devout Christian. He was converted by a Dutch pastor named Godfrey de Luz. And Hendrick ended up moving back to his Mohawk territory and becoming a pastor amongst the Mohawk. So all the, the Mohawks that were converted to the Protestant denominations, he became their pastor in the village on top of a war chief. He was not only recognized among Native Americans as a leader that had good morals and justice, but he became really equal in esteem by the white traders of the Mohawk Valley. He was a very aggressive advocate for Indian rights and recognized very early on that 
liquor was really wreaking havoc among his people. And he and William Johnson both decided to try and mitigate the influence that this was having. It didn't work too much, but they tried. He was also a very well-known orator, both at home and abroad. And he even made a trip to England, right, Caleb? That's right, Andrew. In 1740, Hendrick actually got to go to England and met King George II. And King George gave him a custom-made blue coat with gold lace and a cocked hat. And for years afterwards, you would see Hendrick wearing this beautiful English gift from King George. A person in Boston wrote in his uh, article, he said, Hendrick is a bold and intrepid fellow and has amazing oratorial powers. A few years later, in June 1753, Johnson is removed as Indian commissioner, and Hendrick takes it upon himself to get his friend's job back. And so he and a delegation of 17 Mohawks go down and confront Governor George Clinton and announce that their people are very dissatisfied with the treatment by New York, and they are ending their long-standing treaty of friendship with the colony. Uh, Clinton decided that it would be best that William Johnson be reappointed and actually demanded and pleaded that he accept the reappointment. Caleb, you may think that Braddock kind of screwed up by not taking more precautions to make sure that his men didn't get horribly massacred, but before he died, he made a few more mistakes. The first of which was he appointed the governor of Massachusetts, a guy named William Shirley, in charge of this other expedition to attack Fort Niagara. We mentioned in our last episode, the British are planning on launching four different attacks at the same time. So Braddock's to go to the Forks of the Ohio. This guy Shirley's to go to Niagara. William Johnson, they decide they want him to go up to Fort St. Frederick. If you're looking at a map, the only way you can get from the United States of America to Canada are through these choke points right here. You can either head west and go the long way around through the Ohio Territory, or you can cross the Great Lakes at Niagara Falls, or you can go all the way up past the High Peaks region of the Adirondacks, up Lake George, up Lake Champlain, and cross there. So all they have to do is control these three points, and you control all the expansion for one or the other, whether you're French or English. There's another choke point that we're not going to talk about because it really doesn't deal at all with the Iroquois, but I'll just mention it really briefly. There's a fourth expedition, and they launch up into Newfoundland, Nova Scotia area to try and capture that from the French. That's the only part of this that's actually going to succeed. And it's the least important of the campaigns. About what we're talking about. You could learn about what happens to the Acadians, and it's absolutely horrible what the British do to the French people, but that's not our problem right now. So, yeah, they end up deporting all of them. 12,000 of them, and half of them die on ships. It's, it's absolutely horrible. And it does become a problem for the French later on because that's where a lot of their supplies come through before heading down to Montreal. So it does create some supply problems in the following years. But other than that, it really doesn't affect much what we're talking about. So, Braddock is really impressed with Shirley. He's actually a very, very competent administrator as governor, and he's able to organize people and get supplies sent to New York to launch this expedition. And Braddock decides, this guy knows what he's doing. I'm going to make you second in charge and lead this expedition to Niagara. At the same time, we mentioned that William Johnson is to head this group to go to attack Fort St. Frederick. The issue that arises is... William Johnson is made head of the Indian Department, and primarily, Johnson is going to use Indian auxiliaries to go and capture this, along with some British troops. Shirley seems to think that since he's second in charge, Johnson is subordinate to him. 
But Johnson says to himself, no, I'm the Indian commissioner and we have totally separate departments. And so I am fully autonomous and you can't tell me what to do. And Shirley becomes really incensed about this. At first, they're planning things really well. And Shirley demands that Johnson convince Mohawks to go on his expedition. And Johnson just starts arguing with him, saying, I need them. And you don't need Mohawks because you're going to be walking through Iroquois territory. And they've just said that they're going to be neutral and you have no trouble walking through the areas. So quit bothering me. And things just get more and more heated. Then Shirley tries to get Johnson replaced again. And he wants his colonel, right-hand man, a guy named John Lydas, to be his Indian agent and talk to the Six Nations. The issue was the Iroquois didn't really care for Colonel Lydias, not one bit. They had several issues with him. One, he was less than honest. And in the past, he was involved in very shady land transactions, or should I say frauds. He even did this to, I read a little bit about this guy, Caleb. He did this to the colonists all the time. He would sell land that he said that he had bought from the Indians and the people show up and the Indians are like, no way, man, this is ours. And he gets into such trouble later in his life that he actually has to flee to England. And even as an old man, when he's dying, he has somebody write his will and he pays the guy in a land deed for land in New York, which is absolutely worthless. So the Iroquois say, no way, we don't want anything to do with this. We are only dealing with Johnson and nobody else. Shirley just says, whatever, I'm on my way. Now, Fort Niagara is all the way over in modern-day Niagara Falls, just north of Buffalo, New York. And it's right on the tip where the Niagara River leads out into Lake Ontario. So how do you get there? You can't really march straight from Albany all the way over to Buffalo. So what you have to do is you have to go from Albany. You have to take the Mohawk River west. Then there's kind of this dead land called the Oneida Carry because it's in the middle of Oneida territory. You got to pick up your boats and you got to walk across this stretch of land and then you got to get in another creek and go to Lake Oneida and take that river down to a place called Oswego, which gets you to Lake Ontario. Andrew, I'm glad I'm not asking you directions in the 1700s. Just follow the water, Caleb. Then you can stage your army there and sail all the way down Lake Ontario to get to Fort Niagara. At least that's what they thought they were going to do. At first, things go pretty well. They have no trouble getting through Mohawk and Oneida territory, and Shirley's expedition reaches for Oswego in mid-August. It did take a little bit of time because the water was kind of low, and the same thing that we've seen with all these expeditions going on from the last 200 years, supplies become limited, provisions become short, and en route, Shirley learns that General Braddock has died at the Battle of the Monongahela. And he also learns that his son, who was traveling with Braddock, William, he's died as well. And on top of that, Shirley now realizes that Braddock made him second in command of the North American armies. But Shirley has never, ever commanded troops in a battle at all. He's great at being a governor and organizing things, but this guy is totally out of his league to be commanding all forces in North America. He realizes that these troops are famished and ill-equipped. There is no way we can attack Fort Niagara this year. And Shirley decides, well, Fort Oswego is not really a great place, and I am needed elsewhere, so since I'm the new British commander, I should probably be back at Albany and run things from there. So uh, next spring, when conditions are better, why don't you guys attack Fort Niagara then? So we're going to leave Fort Oswego. We're going to put a little pin in that, and we're going to come back to that next time, Caleb. So what did he do with all the men when he moved? 
when he went down to Albany. He, he just, left them there. Just left them there. Left them there. So we're going to find out what happens to these guys, but not today. Again, everything is happening at once. So let's counter back and talk about the Battle of Lake George. Now, we mentioned, Caleb, that Lake George is kind of this thin little lake that connects to Lake Champlain, and so it's a choke point, and it's very close to Albany. And William Johnson's job is to go and try and take Fort St. Frédéric. If you were to say anybody had any bit of success during these expeditions, you could say that it's William Johnson. Yeah, and that's uh, even being a little generous. In September 8, 1755, he reached the southern end of Lake George, where his intention was to advance from Lake George north to Lake Champlain and attack the French fort there at Crown Point. Johnson had about 1,500 British colonial militia and 200 Mohawk warriors, but Hendricks said prior to the Battle of Lake George that if they fight with too few men, they'll all be killed. You have to remember, this fort has cannons. There's no sense going up against a superior force that's also better equipped and better fed. Meanwhile, the French that are up at this fort near Crown Point have decided to send out a force to stop the advance of the British. And they decide to make an encampment down between the two lakes, and the French called it Fort Clarion. Later it was given a different name, and if you've read any American history, you may have heard of this place. It will be called Fort Ticonderoga. So on September 4th, the French commander decides to launch a raid on Johnson's base. Johnson had recently constructed a fort called Fort Edward on the Hudson River, and his goal was to come down here and destroy this. So you got two armies, one trying to destroy one fort and one coming down to try and destroy the other fort. The French commander left about half his force at Fort Clarion, again, future Fort Ticonderoga. And then he led the rest of his force on an alternate route down to the Hudson. Then he arrived near Fort Edward at the evening of September 7th. He had 222 French regulars, 600 Canadian militia, and 700 Abenaki and Canadian Mohawks. So this is a rather large force. It's actually nearly the same size as the force that William Johnson has coming up as they're going down. Johnson camps about 14 miles or 23 kilometers north of Fort Edward. Remember, they're marching north, and he's at the southern end of Lake George. When he's alerted by scouts that there's an enemy force coming down to meet them, so he dispatches a messenger to warn the 500 men he's got stationed at Fort Edward. The problem is his messenger gets intercepted, and soon afterwards the supply train that he had was captured. And then... All of Johnson's dispatches became known to the French. Sir William Johnson is having this council of war, and he proposes sending 500 men to destroy the French boats and sending another 500 men to help uh, bolster up Fort Edward. Hendrick, at this point, uh, steps up and he says, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but that's completely stupid. If we're going to attack, we need to attack with all 1,000 men. And if you're not going to attack with all 1,000 men, then you can count all the Mohawks out because we're not going to stick our necks out there because of your stupid decision. So Johnson decided, oh, that sounds like a very good point. So what do you think we should do? So he ends up taking Hendrick's advice and they decide to all march towards the fort. And we're going to see that they're going to crash right in to the French commander's fort heading south to meet them. Another issue is some of these British people begin to desert and they go over to the French and again they tell them that William Johnson is approaching and so they block a portage road. A portage is where there's two bodies of water where you gotta get out of the boat and walk up and so they set up an ambush. It seems like it's always in a glen. Why don't people check out the glens or the 
valleys when they're coming through. Have you ever walked through the foothills of the Adirondacks region of New York, Andrew? They're all glens. Everything's a glen. <laughs> Everything's a ravine. All right. I guess I'll give them a, a little bit of credit here. So they've set up this ambush, and William Johnson's column marches straight into the trap. They do have the Mohawks scouting ahead to check out things to make sure it's all clear, and it's being led by Hendrick. Now, as Hendrick is riding, all of a sudden he hears, allegedly, people calling out to him in Mohawk, telling him to get his men out of there. It's a trap. There's another version of the story that goes down too, Caleb. That's right, Andrew. Uh, So we're going to tell you both here, but like Andrew said, his version that he read, the Mohawk warned Hendrick and his Mohawks to get out of there because there's about to be an ambush and they're perfectly fine killing all the English, but they'd prefer not to kill their distant family members. In another version, it's reported that Hendrick sees that they're Mohawks and he rides up ahead and calls to them not to shoot and at which point they all open fire on him and the Mohawks. His horse is struck, and he falls to the ground. And at this time, Hendrick is a fairly old man. He's at least in his early 60s. And he tries to run away, but uh, a young 25-year-old warrior compared to a 60-something-year-old warrior, uh, he really didn't have much of a chance. A few moments later, hot lead and volleys from the French and all of these Canadian Mohawks are pouring down into the British people. And it's just a a total free-for-all. This event becomes known as the Bloody Morning Scout. Many of the New Englanders that are marching with Johnson totally turn around and flee towards Johnson camp. But about a hundred of their comrades under a man named Whiting and Lieutenant Colonel Pomeroy, and many of the surviving Mohawks cover their withdrawal with a fighting retreat. That's exactly what it sounds like. You're still shooting back, you're still fighting, but you're slowly drawing back to make sure that everybody else that's wounded or running away can escape. You'll see whenever anybody is writing records of any retreat, they always claim that it's it's a fighting retreat because it's honorable. It's like a strategic withdrawal, an orderly withdrawal where we're going to cover everybody and fall back. But during this, the British rearguard is actually to inflict very substantial casualties on these confident over-pursuers. Uh, Pomeroy notes in his journals that they killed a great number of men and we were dropping them like pigeons. Sounds like a, a battle war story. During this phase of the battle, there was a man, a French commander named uh, Saint-Pierre. And he was a pretty highly respected commander of the Canadian commander's forces. And he gets it in his head that he's going to get on horses and lead a cavalry charge at these Brits. Very heroic. And, you know, what do footmen have against a cavalry charge? It just seems like the perfect strategy. Especially in the middle of a dense forest. The Mohawks that are allied with the British are just standing there and can't believe what they're seeing. There's a bunch of people riding towards them with horses. And they've fallen back. And remember, they've got a pretty defensible position. They can hide behind the trees and the rocks. And they just take aim with their muskets. They shoot them. And a lot of the Indians viewed him as a... When I say Indians, the Canadian Indians view him as a great warrior. And when they see him fall, they're like, oh man, that's not good. And even the French are like, that's really not good. So it kind of stops the flow right there. So the French commander orders the Canadians and Indians to hold up a sec, but we're going to follow up and attack Johnson's. But their morale is really shaken. And a man named Cadnawagas says that we do not wish to attack an entrenched camp. And we definitely don't wish to attack this camp because there are hundreds of Mohawk and there are kinsmen. 
and even the Abernakis would not go forward without this Mohawk chief's word. And so since the Mohawk and the Abenakis wouldn't go forward, none of the Canadian militia would go forward either. So the French commander is hoping that he can shame these Indians who uh, aren't willing to go and fight the other Indians and the English. So he decides he's going to grab his 222 French that are willing to go, the Grenadiers, and get them in a column and dress them all up in a nice six abreast line and march them in order right down the road to Johnson's camp. Sir William Johnson was quickly trying to create some sort of defensive barricade. He didn't have time to build a fort, but they're dropping trees and they're getting their shovels out and making mounds and cat holes. They're flipping over wagons. Yeah, they're flipping over the wagons and uh, trying to get all the supplies in the middle so that you can just have everything that will be destroyed on the ends. And uh, like we said, cutting down huge trees, some of them uh, 10 feet across. And uh, once the grenadiers in their nice orderly fashion made it to the open ground, the British gunners uh, just opened fire on them. And they had small cannon with them too. And they weren't just shooting cannonballs. They just loaded these cannons up with the, the one ounce lead musket balls called grape shot. You know, through a hundred rounds of that in the cannon. Yeah, they said that they started carving lanes, streets, and alleys. In other words, they'd just fire and a straight line of French people would fall down in this six abreast column that they had this great idea to do. During all this mayhem, Johnson is actually wounded. He gets shot in the leg and he's forced to retreat to his tent for treatment. So General Phineas Lyman takes over. But then the French commander goes down with a serious wound. I think they said that he gets shot in the bladder or something like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a death sentence in the 1700s. Well, we're going to see what happens to him. So after the French withdrawal, the British find about 20 severely wounded Frenchmen who are lying close to the field near Johnson's lanes that they shot open. And this included the French commander. Allegedly, William Johnson saved this guy's life because an Indian was going over getting ready to, you know, bash his brain in. But Johnson, realizing that he's the commander, saves his life. And there's this famous painting showing Johnson staying the hand of a Indian person with this cowardly looking Frenchman laying on the ground. And apparently he survives and recovers. How the heck do you survive getting a bullet through the bladder? Can your bladder heal? I guess it can. Hmm. Apparently it does. (laughs) Go figure. uh, My wife's in the medical field. I'm going to have to ask her. Maybe they just said the bladder, but it wasn't. I really don't think you could survive a bullet shot to the bladder back then. I don't think the bladder heals like that. How does stuff that needs to drain, drain? It's like getting a shot in the guts. You would think that that would just be it. Anyway, whatever. Meanwhile, Colonel Joseph Blanchard, he's the commander of Fort Edward, which, again, to give you a picture, that's south of here where this is going on. He sees the smoke that's coming from this battle in the distance. And so he sends out uh, another guy with a company of 80 men from the New Hampshire Regiment and about 40 New York Provincials to investigate. When they get to a pond, they find that the French baggage group is there resting. There's about 300 Canadians and Mohawks sitting here, and they just stumble upon it just sitting there guarding the baggage what should we do and so from the forest they just shoot out a hail of lead totally surprising them they have no chance to escape hundreds of them are killed and after the battle they take the bodies of these frenchmen and mohawks and they just chuck them in the pond that they were resting near hundreds of bodies so much that it colors the water red with blood and to this day 
The place is known as Bloody Pond. So after all is said and done, the Battle of Lake George was fought in these three different segments that we mentioned, and it's a British victory. They do not get to their objective of Fort St. Frederic up on Lake Champlain, but they forced the French to withdraw from the field. So, yay, we claim it as a victory. Johnson, while he's healing from his wound, decides that he's going to go just a little bit further down the lake, and he's going to build a fort. And they called the fort William Henry, after King George's two sons. Now, even though this is a victory for the English, it's not really a victory in any way, shape, or form for the Mohawk. That's right. They've just lost one of their greatest chiefs, King Hendrick. His death was greatly lamented by the Mohawk because on top of him just being a great leader, like we said, he was bilingual. He spoke English fluently and the Iroquois. He always worked for peace and uh, fair trade between both cultures. So he was also greatly mourned by the English. So Johnson, being his son-in-law, steps up to the plate, and he does everything within his power to take care of Hendrick's whole extended family, especially his widowed wife. And he's going to be paying Hendrick's widow uh, a pension for many years to come. This is a horrible thing that's happened for the French Mohawks as well, because we remember during this dozens, perhaps even upwards of a hundred Mohawks are killed in this ambush and thrown into a pond. So when it comes to the Mohawks, neither side won. And I'm sure this is going to create some uh, resentment between the Mohawk families when they find out back home that you know, a hundred Mohawks just killed, you know, they both conflicted injuries and deaths on both sides. And they're always trying to avoid this. We're going to see throughout the whole French and Indian War, whenever they can help it, they want to avoid hurting each other because they do look at each other as family. It reminds me a lot in the Civil War when you have some of these Irish regiments and some are fighting from the the North and the South, and they actually know these people, their cousins and their family members they grew up with, and they have to fight against each other. This is how a lot of the Mohawk felt. Now, before we go, there's one more smaller engagement that happens a, a short time after this, and uh, this is going to be in the following year in 1756, and this is called the Sneak Attack on Fort Bull. March 12th, 1756, a force of about 90 Iroquois and 20 Huron come down from Canada with a approximately 200 Frenchmen, and they're heading for Oneida country. We mentioned before that there's this place called the Oneida Carry, and it's in between where the Mohawk River lets off and this creek that leads down into the waterways to Lake Ontario. And the British have built this fort called Fort Bull. It's pretty much located in modern-day Rome, New York. Now, this is a vital link because it's a fort right in between Albany and all these troops, remember, that we've got over here that uh, surely left at Oswego. So this is working as basically continuing the chain, the supply chain, between the forces that are marching north up to Canada and uh, the mainland, Iroquois and English colonies. So the French and their allied Indians realize that if they can cut off this choke point, it leaves Fort Oswego totally defenseless by itself, and there's no chance that Fort Oswego can threaten either Fort Niagara or our old favorite fort, Fort Frontenac, which is on the north side of Lake Ontario near the St. Lawrence River. So the French commander for this mission is a man named Lery, and on March 27th, as they're marching down, he captures about 12 British men near Fort Bull. A few others escape, but instead of 
Fleeing towards Fort Bull, where they realize that forces are heading, they head back towards Albany. Learning from the few prisoners that they've taken, they realize that Fort Bull is pretty much a pathetic-looking little uh, establishment. They decide to immediately attack, because the French have come over this rugged Adirondack country, and there's no way they can bring cannons. So their only hope is by doing a sneak attack and storming the fort by surprise. Now, again, as we've seen a million times before, the majority of these Canadian Mohawks absolutely refuse to attack a fortified position because they're smart. A few are able to be convinced to go with the French, and the rest say, we'll stay back here, guard the baggage and the prisoners. You Frenchies have at it. So, Lurie gives orders to be silent. I could see him like a dad. All right, you kids, be quiet. We do not want anybody to know that they're here, and we're going to rush this fort. However, Indians fight differently, and the few braves that decide to go with them give out a battle cry as they're charging in. Yeah, this sometimes helps striking fear into people's hearts, but other times, especially when attacking a fort, when you hear this blood-curdling war cry, the first thing people tend to do is close the gate into the fort. So as soon as these Indians start running up, tomahawk in hand, screaming towards the wall, the, the people inside run over and slam the gate and bolt it shut. And then, the, the funny thing is, the, the Iroquois braves that are with them say, well, we're definitely not storming the fort now. <laughs> and they take off and head back, leaving the French to storm the fort by themselves. Uh, the French don't have much trouble, though, because this is really a pathetic and sad-looking fort. Um, they have loopholes set up, which are little areas that have a gap that allow you to fire a rifle or a musket out. But... They're a little too wide, and the French are able to just stand up and stick their muskets and rifles in and shoot into the fort. Yeah, instead of having all of the men defend these holes and shooting the French as they run up, everybody's kind of run and hidden in the middle of the fort. So the French are using their own walls for defense to shoot down on the English. The English are pretty pathetic, and they lob a few grenades over the walls and throw some rocks, but it's rather sad. Again, the commander at Fort Bull refuses to surrender, and the French say, seriously? All right, whatever. So they get some axemen out, and they just start chopping at the palisade that's there, and within an hour, they've made a hole, and they storm the fort. That's when the Indians decide, hey, let's get in here and get in on the action, and they rush the fort as well, and it's just a massacre. They kill almost every single person, and just a few people are taken captive. Once the French get inside, they can't believe what they see. This fort is so puny and minuscule, but when they get in, Caleb, what do they find? They find 45,000 pounds of gunpowder. And even though this is a tiny fort that you know, most likely never would use this much powder. Like we said, this is most likely a supply depot for the English forces moving north on Lake George and Lake Champlain. So at some point, they were probably going to put some of this on carts and send it north. I can't even imagine what 45,000 pounds of gunpowder looks like, though, Andrew. And the French commander says, all right, there's no way we're going to even bother carrying any of this back. So I got a great idea. Let's carefully take these barrels and stocks and this fort is right on a creek. Throw it in the creek. The gunpowder becomes wet. It's totally useless. And then we'll just pull down the fort. I don't think the environmentalists would appreciate this idea. Definitely not. However, in the chaos that was rushing this small fort, somehow a fire got started. And the French realize, hey, 
There's 45,000 pounds of gunpowder in here. Put this fire out quickly or we're all going to get blown up. And so they, I can just picture them with small little buckets going over the creek and trying to throw water on the fire. And eventually the commander says, you idiots, let's just get out of here. And so they take off and start running. I picture like Arnold Schwarzenegger running away from the building. That's in about slow to, motion. In slow motion. And as they're running... The fire is slowly spreading and it hits the gunpowder and then a huge explosion rips and it absolutely shatters the fort, blowing it out in all directions, sending logs and timbers and slivers and branches in every direction and it knocks all the French people over and you know some of them get jabbed with pieces of wood and get burned and all fall over. And then there's two other secondary explosions that go off and by the time they, they stand up, some of them probably with hair charred or stuff all over their coats or wood in their shoulder or something like that, they stand up and they're just like, everybody okay? They were all okay. At the end of all the carnage, they have only lost a single person. Meanwhile, uh, Sir William Johnson, I can just picture him, he looks off in the distance and sees this atom bomb cloud going off. And so he gets his relief column to go there and do what he thinks is going to be supporting Fort Bull with reinforcements. But when he gets there, there's just this black piece of ash in a circle where the fort used to be. And a lot of scalped bodies, 76 scalped corpses scattered amongst the charred remains of the fort. So now this link between Albany and Fort Oswego has been severed. This leaves the British that are over here on Lake Ontario totally cut off. They're 150 miles from the nearest British settlement. So we're going to see next time what happens to this group of people here at Fort Oswego. And we're also going to talk about the Battle of Fort William Henry, which is somewhat more famous. A lot of you may have heard that before because this is the fort uh, that's featured in The Last of the Mohicans. So we're going to have some fun talking about that with Colonel Monroe. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We should be back probably next week. Andrew and I have already done a lot of the reading and research for that episode. So hopefully we can record it next weekend so you don't have to wait too long. Uh, we'd like to point out a new iTunes listener. We got another British review, Caleb. So to all you people over in Europe that are leaving us reviews, keep it up. So this person is from the UK, and their username is BBC, well, that's very appropriate, XYZ. So thank you to you. Hey, Andrew, do you mind if I read the comment they left? I, I didn't copy the comment, just their username. Well, I'll just, I guess I'll tell you what I think they said. Oi, chaps, I think you guys do a great job out there with this podcast on the Native American Indians. Keep it up, and I'll buy you a blooming pipe next time I see you. That sounds good. So, if you'd like Caleb to totally massacre and insult your accent and culture, please leave us an iTunes review, and we will induct you into our honorary Wild Sweet Potato Clan. That's right. Our clan's getting pretty big. We could probably put together our own little rating force at this point. We actually uh, just passed 50 iTunes reviews this week, so thank you very much, everybody. It really means a lot to us. So, you can check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. Don't forget, if you haven't yet, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. If you have any questions about anything, something that just doesn't match up, feel free to message us. We try to get back to everybody. And if you know any cool little stories that maybe we missed and you want to send us a link to some resource that you have, feel free to do that. Maybe we can get it in the next episode. So we will talk to you all next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>